Good morning. It's uh, great to see you all. My name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors uh, and uh, part of our preaching team. And yes, fun to start a new series in the book of Colossians. It's going to take us 10 weeks, and uh, I just uh, think it'll be a great way to follow up where we've been in the Gospel of John. I love the smell of orange blossoms and the way that dark chocolate feels in your mouth as it melts. I think it's awesome to hold a warm cup of coffee on the front porch on a crisp morning. There's nothing quite like shampoo with tea tree oil. I have a bottle, I use it about once a week because I want it to feel like spa week, spa day whenever I do that. I love watching my kids when they root for each other. I like holding Molly's hand. I love listening to an amazing electric guitar solo or hearing the sound of a Devin Booker three-point swish. May we hear more of it again very soon. The sound of the family laughing around the dinner table, the faces of people beaming as they're being baptized. Those are some things that bring me pleasure. All right, there's more that we could add to the list, but, but I, just, I just take great delight. I take great pleasure in all of the things I just mentioned. What brings you pleasure? What's on your list? What makes you go, Oh, yeah, this is so good. What brings you pleasure? What about this? What brings God pleasure? What makes God go, oh, yes? Can you bring God pleasure? Not just like people. Can people bring God pleasure? No, 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 no. Can you? Can you bring God pleasure? The answer to that is yes. In Colossians 1 verse 9, Paul talks about how he's praying. He says, we've not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. Can you bring God pleasure? Yes. And what Paul's saying is, I'm writing this book and I'm praying these prayers in part so that you would be fully pleasing to him. Think about this. Most of us just can't even believe this. Most of us think that at best, when it comes to a relationship with God, the best place we might ever get is, I'm a mixed blessing. Yeah, I guess God loves me, but he, he has to love everybody. But, but it really, it's more like he tolerates me because I'm such a... Ugh, I keep messing up in this area. I, I know there's all these things I'm supposed to do. I don't do them. And, and you at best think you're a mixed blessing. You don't settle for that in other areas of life. You don't settle for that in work. At work, you go, I want to succeed. I want to thrive. I want to get promoted. I want to see this business grow. You don't settle for that when you coach your kids' sports teams. You, you, yeah, you want to have fun, but you're trying to help them win. You don't settle for that in these other areas of life. You don't settle for that with your kids. You want the best for your kids. You want your kids to thrive and develop and grow and have the best life they could have. But then when it comes to faith, we kind of go, eh, I'm not aiming for fully pleasing to God. I'll just be a mixed blessing. And I want to tell you, what, what if, 
What if it's possible that when God looks at you, it feels to him like when we listen to the sound of a baby giggling? It's like, gosh, that is so good. What if the Lord looks at you like that? So in this first passage of the book of Colossians, in this first of 10 weeks, we're going to get some insight into what it might look like to have a life that is pleasing to God. And so the title of this message is How to Pursue a Life That Pleases God. It's possible, and we're going to experience it as we explore what we see in this passage today. Now, before we dive into it, I want to just introduce you to the series as a whole into this book, uh, the letter of uh, Paul to the Colossians. Uh, Paul, sometimes is called the Apostle Paul, we're introduced to him in the book of Acts. Uh, he was a really devout Jew who was so concerned about this new Christian movement that was developing that actually in his zeal for Judaism, he was arresting Christians, he was persecuting Christians, he was standing nearby approving while Christians were even killed. And on his way to do that in the town of Damascus, he's interrupted. He's knocked off his horse. A blinding light appears. The voice of Jesus booms. Uh, at that point, he was going by the name Saul. And the voice booms, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus saying, listen, when you persecute my people, you're persecuting me. And it changes Paul's whole life. He gets a whole new name. He gets a whole new vision. He gets a whole new focus. And he goes from being one of the main opponents of Christianity to one of the main proponents of Christianity, spends the rest of his life traveling around the Roman world, telling people about Jesus, announcing the good news, planting new communities of faith called churches, and then nurturing them oftentimes with his writing. And so he writes a lot of the New Testament, and a lot of the New Testament are made up of his letters. Uh, theologians call them epistles. And this is a letter or an epistle to this church in Colossae. That's what it says in verse 2, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Now, uh, Colossae was just a small town in modern-day Turkey. Paul had actually never been there. He didn't know these people. He had not met these people. Probably this church was started by someone who'd been influenced by Paul's ministry in Ephesus. And, uh, and yet, he's heard about these folks, and he is writing to encourage them. Here's a map of, uh, of where this would have been. I know that's real small, but you can kind of see the yellow and red part. That's the town of Colossae. The other uh, towns there with kind of the green stars, uh, those are cities that had more substantial churches. Those churches um, are actually the seven churches that are talked about in the book of Revelation. And by the way, if you are curious about possibly exploring those, uh, Mark Burns, who's our community and global uh, pastor, he's going to be leading a group of people this fall to take a tour of those seven cities and to see those ruins and to kind of pray through what God might do as he kind of revives the church in Turkey. So that's uh, kind of modern Turkey. You see Istanbul up there at the way top. Uh, so Colossae is just this little town in this little place. But Paul hears from Epaphras who started that church about it and he writes them this letter to encourage them. The theme of the book of Colossians is this, the supremacy of Christ in all of life. The supremacy of Christ in all of life. That's what this book is about. The first two chapters really lift up how Jesus is supreme over everything. And the, second, the last two chapters really say, now here's how we live in light of that reality. I did something kind of fun uh, this week. They have these things online, you know, these word cloud generators where you put in some amount of text and uh, it creates a word cloud. And however many times in the text you submit to it, or however many words show up more often than other words, they show up bigger on the word cloud. And so I put in the whole text of Colossians and I want to show you what we came up with. Here's, oh, a class 
what is Colossians about? Uh, Christ, who's Lord, who's God over everything and all things. Right, so, so this is what this book is about. Now, some resources we want to uh, help you uh, if you want to dig deeper on this. Uh, there's a study guide that I wrote uh, with you in mind that's really for individuals or for groups to study. Um, and uh, we've run out of the hard copies for it, but the digital copy you can download if you pull out that QR. Um, and uh, we'll be emailing that to you and uh, posting that on social media and other things as well. But this is basically a 10-week study guide for individuals and groups. Takes you through kind of Bible study questions, implication questions. It's got some short little articles in there, answering questions that are kind of interesting but are not necessarily covering stuff that I think we'll talk about in the sermons. Um, and so if this is a blessing to you, uh, we would love for you to have it. If you're an RC leader, we have reserved some printed copies for you uh, that we didn't sell last service. So uh, stop at the info desk if you're an RC leader and get uh, one of those. Um, we also have put together some videos that we'll be releasing each week on uh, Instagram that is kind of just additional teaching on how the the reality of Jesus connects with different areas of life, like money and rest and sports and uh, school and stuff like that. So uh, those resources might help you as well. So that's kind of an intro to the book of Colossians. But today, how to pursue a life that pleases God. This is what's possible, according to this text. You could be fully pleasing to Him. Let's explore what that looks like. Let's pray. Father, uh, we invite you now to speak to us, to encourage us. Lord, a lot of us find it really hard to believe that you would even want to delight in us like that verse we read says. We find it even harder to believe that, that we could ever bring you that kind of pleasure. So Lord, would you burst through those doubts? And would you encourage our faith? Would you give us confidence in your affection and your care for us? In a way that changes our lives, sets us free. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. How to pursue a life that pleases God. You have to root yourself in the gospel, give thanks for his grace so far, and ask for even more. That's what we're going to look at from this text today. So first, if we're going to live a life that's pleasing to God, we have to root ourselves in the gospel. You must root yourself in the gospel. This passage describes what the gospel is. In verse 5, it says this, uh, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. So first of all, the gospel is a word of truth, and that word gospel means good news. This is important. The message of Christianity, which is the gospel, which is the good news, is not a lifestyle. Hey, live this way. It's not an ethic. Hey, just focus on this morality. It's not a philosophy. Here's what you should think about everything. It's not a worldview. It's not an interpretation. It is truth about events that happened, namely the life, the death, the burial, the resurrection, the ascension, and the return of Jesus. That is news. That happened, right? This is not, news is not something you go like, well, well, what, what do I do? No, it's like this happened. So the gospel is a word of truth. It's a word of truth we see in this passage for the whole world, it says, word of truth, the gospel, verse 6, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing. 
This is kind of hard for us to get our heads around because for us, when we think about religions, we think of world religions. We think of Christianity and Judaism and Islam and Mormonism and Buddhism, right? We kind of, to us, we kind of can't really imagine a religion that isn't kind of a world religion. But to ancient people, that was a totally foreign concept. To ancient people, deities and God and religion was very local. And, and when nations would go to battle, it was really not just a battle between two armies, but a battle between two gods. And so when Paul here is saying, this is the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, and it's going over the whole world, what he's saying is, this isn't just some local thing you experienced in Colossae. This is a worldwide thing because Jesus is Lord of all. Right? This is a message that's good news for the whole world. Get it? The gospel is not Vegemite. Have you ever been to Australia or New Zealand or you know people from there and they come and they try to tell you, hey, mate, you got to really enjoy this Vegemite. It's amazing. Just put it on toast, put it on anything. You'll love it. And you try it. Have you ever had Vegemite? It's disgusting. It's horrible. It's awful. It is, I mean, it's clearly an acquired taste that for some people in the world, it's great. The gospel's not Vegemite. It's chocolate. Everyone, everywhere in the world loves chocolate. Well, then some Vegemite for you, I guess. <laughs> but, but this is the message of the gospel. It's the word of truth for the whole world. And it is, as it says in verses 6 and 7, uh, to be heard and understood and learned. He says it it's bears fruit and increases. It's doing that among you since the day you heard it and understood it and learned it. So, Part of the reason we spend so much time doing Bible teaching is because the gospel is not just something to be felt or experienced, though it is, but it's also something to be heard and learned and understood. Now, in, as Western people, we can just go there and kind of say, hey, forget about the experience. We just want to kind of be brains on a stick. We don't want to do that either. But uh, so much of uh, what Christianity is doing is trying to go, hey, there's a head and a heart but your heart can only engage with what's true. And the message of the gospel, it's a word of truth. It's good news about how Jesus lived a perfect life and died as a sinless substitute for sinners and rose conquering Satan, sin, and death. That he's coming back to make all things new. That is true. That's the gospel. Now, the question then becomes, well, what does the gospel do? Okay, if I'm gonna root myself in the gospel because I wanna live a life that pursues pleasing God, what does the gospel do? What, what the gospel does? Well, this passage tells us at the end of this what the gospel does. He says in verse 11, may you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So first, what the gospel does is it qualifies us. See that verse 12? We give thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints. The word qualified means to make fit, to prepare, to make sufficient. Uh, I love the Denver Broncos, and the last time we were good, Peyton Manning was the quarterback, and uh, his last year, he was dealing with a bunch of injuries, and, I mean, he was throwing, instead of throwing spirals, he was just throwing, like, end-over-end lob balls, right? Because he was hurt and lots of stuff. And, and so one of the things he was doing, because his timing was all bad because he couldn't throw anymore, 
is he was doing all this extra practice to try to get timing and stuff like that. And so there was this one practice squad player named Jordan, uh, Jordan Taylor. And uh, this guy was just spending day after day after day running all these extra routes with uh, Peyton Manning, helping him practice. Well, at some point, Jordan Taylor got moved from the practice squad to the actual like travel team. And he had never done this before. And uh, when you travel on an NFL plane, you can't wear your sweatsuit. You got to wear a suit suit. And Jordan Taylor didn't have a suit. Peyton Manning said, I can fix that. Took him to his kind of special designer and said, I'll get you a suit. And he got him this thousands of dollar custom, perfect, like the guy looked like a stinking stud, looked like an all pro. What was Peyton Manning doing? He was, he was saying, hey, you're not qualified to get on this plane like you are. I'll get you qualified. I'll get you the clothes you need. That's what Jesus is doing for us. He's saying, in your own strength, in your own clothing, not good enough. But the, what, what we get clothed with is we get clothed with Christ. We become adopted by Christ. And therefore, because we're qualified, we share in the inheritance of the saints. What's the inheritance of the saints? It means we get God forever. By the way, only, only family members get an inheritance. And so now we're made part of the family. We're qualified. The second thing the gospel does is delivers us, delivers us. Verse 13, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness. This word delivers means rescues, saves, pulls out of, pulls out of specifically the domain of darkness. This is saying that the natural place that all humanity lives is in darkness. This was a huge theme of the gospel of John that we just finished. The light of the world has to come because people walked in darkness and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. And this is what the gospel does, is delivers you, pulls you out, rescues you out of that darkness. When I read this, I thought of that, uh, that mine in 2010 in Chile, that gold and copper mine that had collapsed and there were uh, 33 copper and gold miners who were buried under there for 69 days until they figured out a way to send a probe down and to to get these guys and to pull them out of the darkness. And they come out and they hug and they cheer and they celebrate and they say hallelujah because they were buried and now they're free again. That's what the gospel does for you, for me. Qualifies us, delivers us, and transfers us. Look at verse 13. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. So he doesn't just pull you out of the darkness, but then he transfers you, he shifts you, he moves you into something even better. Uh, we've got four kids, and uh, so at this point in our family's history, we have done potty training for all four. And more often than not, it appears to have been successful. Um, <laughs> but if you've ever kind of gone through that process with kids, especially when they're little and they're kind of in that process, there's those times when you just notice that they're standing still you're like, hey, come here. And they're like, <laughs> you go, what, uh, what, what happened? <laughs> right, and, and you, right, it's nice when this happens like on tile or something, right? And you, you walk in the kitchen and it's like, oh, I see what happened because they're, they're standing in a puddle. And what do you do when that happens? You transfer them. <laughs> you pick them up. You go, don't move, don't walk through this, just you, and you carry them to the bathtub, and you put them in the bathtub, and you just turn it on, they take their clothes off in there, right? Like, you go like, I, I, this is 
this is not going to work. You can't stay here. I need to transfer you. That's what's happening. The Lord finds us in our darkness. He finds us in our waste. He finds us in our filth. He finds us in our sin. And he says, no, 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 I'm not going to let you stay there. I'm going to move you into a new kingdom, the kingdom of his beloved son. So the gospel qualifies us, delivers us, transfers us, and it redeems and forgives us. Verse 14, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This word redemption or to redeem has with it the idea of release. Forgiveness is the idea of canceling debt, of pardoning. So we are redeemed into this new freedom, right? The, the, I, was, I was thinking, man, when do we use the word redeem? And what came to my mind was, oh, the, the time we, I hear that word redeem the most is with gift cards, right? Think about it. Like, Kohl's has those jeans you want, and they're imprisoned, right? They've got that little sensor thing on it right? And you walk into Kohl's and you give them the gift card and they release the jeans from their captivity <laughs> and you can take the jeans and wear them. Now, they won't fit right, so you got to take them back, but that's a different, that's a different thing, right? That, that, that's, that's what we think of with, with like, I'm going, okay, that's redeeming. It's, it's hey, this happens and so it's, it sets free this thing that I want. Did you know that in America, in the U.S., every year, $170 billion is spent on gift cards? That's a lot. The estimate is that uh, when you add up everyone's unused gift cards, it's around $15 billion. We all have unused gift cards at the total of about $15 billion. Now, why is that? Well, the reason, there's really three big reasons. Uh, One is sometimes the gift cards expire. Ah, I didn't get there in time. Second reason is sometimes you lose it, right? Right now, some of you are going like, yeah, someone gave me that AMC gift card. Where is that? Is that my car? Is that in the front? You know. Someone after the last service came up and she had this picture of, they had figured out, we have all these unused gift cards and we're going to take one week off of work and we're just going to use every gift card. (laughs) I was like, that sounds stinking amazing. Like, that's incredible. Right, so sometimes they expire, sometimes you lose them, or, and this happens uh, more than we'd like to admit, the company that had the gift card went out of business. Now you can't use it. Well, here's the thing. The redemption we have with Jesus, he doesn't go out of business. It doesn't expire. There's no like, oh, no, we don't take that anymore here. No, the forgiveness of sins that we have because of Jesus, that, that we're redeemed, we're, we're purchased out of this slavery to sin, and we're brought into this new life because of the sins that are forgiven by Jesus. So the gospel qualifies us, delivers us, transfers us, redeems us, forgives us. Now, this is key. The root of God's pleasure in you, because that's what we're talking about here, right? We're talking about how, how does this relate to a life that pleases God? If you're going to have a life that pleases God, you have to root yourself in the gospel. The root of God's pleasure in you, get this, is not what you've done for God, but it's what he's done for you because he's the one doing this. You didn't qualify yourself. You didn't deliver yourself or transfer yourself or redeem yourself or forgive yourself. He did it for you. That's the news. That's the message. That's the announcement. That's the truth. Look at what he did. And so when you root yourself there, you're already like going, oh, okay. This isn't about me getting out my checklist and trying to prove myself to God. This is about receiving the gift of salvation because everything that was required of me, Jesus did in my place. 
So you want to live a life that pleases God? Root yourself in the gospel. Here's the second thing, is give thanks for God's grace so far. (laughs) If this is just all God's grace, then one of the things that really pleases the Lord is when we go, oh Lord, I noticed. You gave me all this. You know when someone gives you something really special, you should thank them, (laughs) right? And a lot of times we forget to do that. Oh yeah, I know I need to do that, right? So some of you now you're like going, I can't even listen to this anymore. I got to find my gift cards. I got to write some notes. (laughs) Thank you notes. I don't know. So tune back in here, okay? But, but, but when God's been so gracious, it makes sense that we thank him. So because of the, the gospel, Paul is able to thank God for the grace of these Colossians that he's never even met. He doesn't even know these people. But look at what he says in verse 3. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Paul's going, I haven't even met you, but I know that if you've been qualified and delivered and transferred and redeemed and forgiven, that you've experienced God's grace, and I've actually heard about it, because Epaphras came to me, and he said, man, you got to hear about these people that I've been sharing the gospel with, this new church that started, and Paul's going, I'm so thankful for it. I want you to just imagine for a second that uh, one of the pastors or elders or leaders in the church pulls you aside in the lobby after this and says, hey, I've heard about you. I've heard what you've been doing. How would you feel? Right, a lot of us are like, uh, right, because we feel guilty or ashamed for different stuff. But what if they then said, you know, I've heard about you. I've heard about how you just keep coming alongside those young moms who are up to their eyeballs in stress, and you just love them, you pray for them, and you bring them a meal every now and then. I've heard about you. I've heard about you. I've heard about how there are these women who are trapped in these abusive marriages and they're trying to get out and you just keep showing up to advocate for them and to love them and to support them and encourage them. I've heard about you. I've, I've heard about those seventh grade boys in your group. Whew, sounds like a squirrely bunch. And you keep showing up week after week after week to love them and get to know them and bless them. I've heard about you. See, this is the kind of conversations we should be having, right? It is okay, get this, it is okay to gossip about grace. Too often it's like, hey, did you hear? But, but, but this is what Paul's doing. He's going, I gotta give thanks to, to God for all of this grace. This is amazing. Uh, Paul Artino at Redemption Gilbert, they have this phrase there with their staff. They say, listen, see something, say something. I think it's funny because we hear that and we think of like terrorist stuff on the airplanes, right? See something, say something. And what he's saying is, no, when you see someone's faith, when you see someone's love, when you see someone's hope, say something. Say something to them. Say something to someone else. Say something to God. We give thanks. So let me ask you, how has God worked in your life so far? How has he done it? I want you to think about this. How has God worked in your life? For some of you, Maybe it's just this, you're still here. And I don't mean here in this room, I mean here. Some of you, you know God's grace. And and you'd say, I wouldn't be here, I would not be alive if not for God's grace. So give him thanks. Some of you, you'd say, you know what, I, I actually love Jesus. 
I, and I want to love him more, and I want to trust him more, but, I, but I, really do, I really do love him. And I know it didn't come from inside me, but, but man, I love him. Give thanks for that. Some of you, you used to be an addict. Alcohol or drugs had, their, had the web around you. And you were stuck. And now you've been sober for two months. Thank God for that. Some of you, you used to be stingy and used to kind of find your identity in all the, all the ways that you didn't misuse money. And now, because of how God has shown up in your life, you're generous and you can't wait to bless other people. Thank God for it. Some of you, you were a mean old cuss. And now, you're a slightly less mean old cuss. Give thanks to God for it. Listen, God's at work here. God loves you. God's delivering and rescuing and changing and renewing and strengthening. So let's thank him for it. You want to live a life that pleases God? Tell the Lord thank you for yourself and for others. So we root ourselves in the gospel. We give thanks for his grace so far. Here's the third thing is we ask for even more. Ask for even more. Paul says, verse 9, and so from the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will. And he goes on. Now, this kind of blows my mind because typically, who do we pray for? The people who are already empty, right? That, that's what our prayer requests look like in our RCs and our men's and women's tables is like, hey, you got to pray for me. I'm really struggling. Hey, pray for me, I feel really empty. Hey, pray for me, I feel really far from God. Hey, pray for me, we've got this uh, meeting with a doctor. Hey, pray for me, my kid is really kind of on a bad path. Hey, pray for me, right? And, and the only time we say, hey, could you pray for me is when it's not going great, right? And, and so if, if Paul were us, he'd go, oh, I heard you guys are doing fine. Take care, love Paul. But no, he, he's going, oh my goodness, you, you've got this great thing going, I want you to have even more. I'm not satisfied with what you have, it's amazing, I praise God for it, I thank God for it, but I am not gonna stop praying for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. This is amazing. Notice these over-the-top words that he's using in verses nine through 11 asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. This is over the top. It's full and getting fuller. Right, this, this is, uh, Seth Trout uses the example of that life with the Holy Spirit is, is like a balloon, right? You take a balloon that's empty, and it's empty, but you blow a little into it, and now you have, you know, a little bit of air in there. Is it full? Yes. Could it get fuller? Yes. This is what we have in Christ, is we have received this deliverance, this transfer, this rescue, this qualification, this redemption, this forgiveness. We've received this, and we've received the Spirit, and He's in our lives, but we can have more, and more, and more, and more. 
We start feeling ashamed. Oh, yeah. I, I, I'm, doing, I'm doing, you don't need to pray for me. I'm doing good. Paul would go, what? You're doing good? Awesome. Let's pray for more. The, the challenge is you've got to believe that God would actually want that for you. Molly and I had the chance a couple weeks ago to, we were invited to the Marriage Collective, which is this group of uh, folks in our church who have been married for five years or less, and they get together once a month for a meal, and uh, they kind of talk about life and marriage and stuff, and so uh, we got invited to share kind of our story over the last 20 years of being married, and what have we learned? One of the main things we shared with them that's really, really helped us in our marriage is this phrase, we're on the same team. We're on the same team. Molly and I were both athletes, we're both competitive, and in marriage, sometimes you can start competing. In order for me to win, you got to lose, and, and you can start kind of being more like rivals than teammates. And so that phrase has just been really helpful for us. Hey, we're on the same team, and here's what I want to tell you, is that when it comes to your relationship with God, you're on the same team. He's for you. He wants you to grow. He wants you to be strengthened. He wants you to be encouraged. He wants you to delight in him. He wants to delight in you. He is for you, right? This is not a stingy, mean-spirited God where when you say, oh, Lord, thank you so much for your grace. Could I have more? He's like, back of the line, greedy. don't you know how busy I am being God? How dare you ask me? For, right? No. What does the Lord know? Psalm 1611, in his presence is fullness of joy. The best thing we could ever have is more of him. So is God going to answer this prayer that we'd be filled with even more? Of course. Why? Because he's on our team. We can't out ask God. You want to live a life that's pleasing to God? This is what it looks like. It's rooted in the good news of the gospel, that he has done for you what you could never do for yourself. And it's thankful for that grace in you and in others, and you pay attention, and then you keep asking God, God, give me even more. Oh, God, I sin, and oh, God, I, I love these things that I shouldn't love the way I do, and oh, God, I keep drifting from what I know is best, but God, forgive me and give me more of you. You can't ask too big. John Newton was a, he's best known for the song Amazing Grace. Before he wrote it, he had been a slave, a captain of a slave trading ship. And he experienced conversion to Christ and he renounced that life. And afterward, he wrote the song Amazing Grace. There's another song he wrote that has a worse title, Come My Soul, Thy Suit Prepare. It's like, he could have used some marketing help. But anyway, <laughs> but in this other hymn, Listen to what he writes. Thou art coming to a king, large petitions with thee bring, for his grace and power are such, none can ever ask too much. That's God's heart for you, Christian. You're a saint. You've been purchased, you've been redeemed, you've been delivered, you've been transferred. You're in a new kingdom, it's the kingdom of his son, and you are qualified for it, not because of you, but because of him. So ask. Father wants to give you the kingdom. Let's pray. God, thank you for grace, for gospel 
good news. And so, Lord, we pray now that we'd be filled with the knowledge of your will, that you'd give us spiritual wisdom and understanding, that we'd walk in a manner worthy of you, fully pleasing to you, bearing fruit in everything we do, increasing in our knowledge of you. God, would you strengthen us with all power? Would you give us your glorious might? Would you give us endurance and patience and joy? God, thank you for the grace that you give us. We pray in Christ's name, amen.